This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Chuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Have you ever been in a situation where you and your business partner can't agree on a certain decision? Up until now, you've never had any troubles like this, and suddenly that small disagreement becomes something big. As reality sets in, you'll realise that no matter how you and your business partner think alike, disagreements are unavoidable. But despite knowing this, the disagreement is still there. How do you overcome it? In today's episode of The Bottom Line, we're speaking with Greg Thomas, commercial lawyer and director at Velocity Legal. Velocity Legal is a boutique law firm focused on private businesses and family groups. Today, Greg talks about the guardrails that you can build to help you resolve disputes without sacrificing your business. You'll hear Greg share some of the reasons why business partners decide to leave a partnership, we'll break down the different mechanisms of resolving disputes, and Greg will share his top tips to help you understand the importance of a well-drafted shareholders agreement. Let's dive in. Hi, Greg. Thank you for joining me on The Bottom Line today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for inviting me, Savan. I'm a director at Velocity Legal. We're a firm in the CBD. Uh, we termed as a boutique firm. We offer services in tax, wills and estates, property, litigation, family, and uh, of course, business and commercial law, which is the area that I practice in. Excellent. Now, you obviously got into legal at one point in time in your life. Tell us a little about your journey into becoming a lawyer. Born and bred in Ballarat, then went to university and actually started working in a firm in the city doing personal injury uh, transport accident work, but saw the light and transitioned into doing business law with a couple of uh, mid-tier firms and uh, ended up with uh, Velocity Legal and very happy to be there. And tell us a little bit about Velocity. It's a very, really new company. You guys have grown over a period of time and the directorship and the staff numbers have grown really quickly. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what you've brought into Velocity in your short period of time that you're there. Well, Velocity, when I arrived, had 10 people. Now we've got over 30. So we've grown quite rapidly over that two-year period. I've brought in a commercial practice and also a couple of other people firm I work with. And so we've got a variety of commercial work that we can do for our clients. Excellent. And one of the areas that you are strong in and have made a name for yourself is in business separation, exits, especially involving legal issues. What made you get into sort of, I don't know if it's a specialisation, but that sort of exiting partners, shareholders and that kind of world? Well, an area that I'm very interested in is family business and family business succession. So this has been a flow on from disputes that have arisen from those sort of arrangements. I'm also in the, I work in the franchising area and that's also sort of an area that this, this crops up in. Awesome. So that's today's topic. So we want to talk about shareholder agreements, people going together into business and so on and, and how we sort of navigate legally around those scenarios. So what are some key factors that should be considered before entering into business where you've got business partners? 
Well, I think a very important thing is actually knowing who you're going to go to business with, the actual person you're going to become a co-owner with because, you know, you can be around a barbecue with some friends or you can be in a, in a garage with your brother-in-law. It all sounds great, but when you're actually in business making decisions, the actual people that you're on the other side of the table are very important to know. Um, also, I mean, you don't really know at the start sometimes how people react under pressure and there's also things that arise during those you know, people's lives, health matters, financial matters, marital matters, and they, they can have also an effect on person's decision-making and how they're living their business lives. In our business, obviously, being an accounting firm, we deal with a lot of businesses that are co-owned. And whenever we have a client come in and, and it's a new startup or it's a business where we're going to be run by multiple people, we always ask the question, what does each person bring to the table and, and what's the value that you bring? And we generally find that the disputes arise not necessarily if everyone's the same, but if everyone brings the same thing to the table, the disputes seem to arise a lot quicker. So what are some of the advice that you give to new business owners that are coming together? What are some of the ways to mitigate some disputes that you might see in the future and how you can sort of mitigate some of those things early days? Clearly, the most important thing is to document the relationship and the proper shareholders agreement or partnership agreement where the relationship is regulated and you can go to, it's like a rule book that you can go and refer to if they have issues. I mean, the best relationship that I find is I never need to go and look at that agreement. But of course, that, that's not really the reality. And uh, so you need a shareholders deed, a partnership deed where it's like disputes arise as a, a way forward. Excellent. I'd love to hear a story where you've had a case where it's gone really, really bad, but they've had such a good agreement that allowed that process to go nice and smoothly. Would you like to, without maybe divulging the name of a client, could you go through a story where a dispute happened and an agreement played really well in a case? Without naming names, two directors, 50% shareholders, their companies, there's four companies and four trusts. There was a really complicated structure, but they basically ran four restaurants. And there was a dispute about, once again, one of the, one of the directors didn't turn up to work. He also um, was always very rude to the staff, once again, similar scenario. And uh, they obviously were in dispute. There were a lot of negotiation between lawyers um, about the um, settlement, but it, it came down to splitting of the restaurants. One wanted two and one wanted other two. But they also wanted the jewel in the crown. They both wanted the jewel in the crown <laughs> restaurant. How do, you, how do you solve that? So th- there was a lot of argument back at and forth. And then my client said, okay, you can have it. I'll just take the other two restaurants. You can take the jewel in the crown. And then the other guy said, well, there must be something suspicious. I don't want that jewel in the crown anymore. You can have it. Oh, no so, way. So they flipped. And the next minute, settlement, and therefore we resolved it. So it was just amazing what I'm trying to get out there. Persevere in the negotiations, keep an open mind, but you never can predict the outcome. And what are some of the ways that you can resolve those disputes? So dispute resolution, is it is there a particular mechanism that the agreement puts in place or is it just up to the lawyers that are discussing this? Well, often the areas that are contentious is how much am I, the share is worth and therefore a shareholder's deed would actually have a mechanism of valuing shares where parties are in dispute well, first, parties should try to communicate and resolve it amongst themselves. But if that doesn't work, well, there's usually a mediation procedure that's, that's referred to or even an arbitration procedure referred to in an agreement. But mediation is the most common where an experienced mediator can facilitate an agreement. Dispute resolution mechanism in the agreement where parties can resolve their disputes and that's a way forward rather than knowing what not to do. I've had, you mentioned valuations. We had a case a while ago at the firm where there was a shareholders agreement was put in place and... It was 
wasn't poorly written, but the section around valuation was really poorly designed. It was a client we inherited. And they had a stipulation on how they would value the business. But the way it was written, it was actually valuing the business nearly double what it was actually meant to be valued. They weren't adjusting certain things. Mm. And there was a dispute. One of the shareholders wanted to get out and they said, well, I want X. And it was X based on the agreement. And the other shareholders were like, well, we're not paying you X because that's not what it's worth. And in the end, when lawyers got involved, the agreement was, well, that's what you put in the agreement. And that's what you sign and that's what you agreed to. So therefore, you need to kind of follow that. Look, in the end, it didn't go to dispute. The difference between A and B was significant Mm -hmm. in a percentage. It was more than nearly double the value. But it was sort of circa 50, 60 grand, which is a lot of money, but it wasn't worth fighting it. And in the end, they just went to – they paid the extra. In that scenario where an error has been made in the way that methodology should be done in evaluation, can they actually go, no, 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 that was a mistake. I know I signed that, but it was a mistake and you know it was a mistake. I know it's a mistake, but now you're saying it's worth higher. Mm. What advice do you have in that scenario? What could have been done better there? I should have gone to an accountant in the first place. Yeah. uh, It's actually when they're drafting the document. But when there's an agreement, the courts can, can also, if there's a mistake, can overturn an agreement, uh, not easily done, but that's something that can be used. But I think it's a matter of communication and, uh, between the parties to try to resolve these things. But certainly prevention is better than cure. So going to an expert in valuation at the time the agreement's drawn is an essential matter. And Greg, you mentioned uh, mediation and a mechanism to be able to resolve disputes. Obviously, not everyone wants to go to court and it's expensive. Can you go through the details of what are the steps? So there's a dispute. It cannot be resolved peacefully between two adults. And now it needs to involve lawyers. But generally, court's the last thing. Can you take us sort of in a detailed journey on what does that look like for two partners? Well, I'll give you an example. Last week, we've got a phone call from a client who... Typical example, he says he's doing more work than his business partner, his co-owner. His contribution is greater. The business partner's not turning up today and when he does turn up, he fights with the staff. So there's a dispute. They've got a meeting the following day. He wanted some advice of how to talk him through that meeting and perhaps give him a bit of some strategies to work it out. So what we do is the most important thing is that we're trying to avoid court. And to do that, you must have a resolution. To resolve, you must listen to the other side. So we make sure that when he has this meeting with his other partner, that he listens to him. Because one person will have one view, another person will have another view. Listen to the person because that's what proper communication is about. And also put yourself in that person's shoes. I mentioned before that person may be having health issues, may have marital issues, those sort of things. So make sure that you listen to them. So he had that meeting and how did it go? Well, they didn't resolve it, but they decided to go to their accountant, their accountant of the business, and often a trusted advisor could be like a centre-half forward in a football match and straighten things up, whether it's their accountant or their lawyer, those people can be very useful in getting a resolution at an early stage. So I certainly encourage that. The things that we also guide is perhaps with the legal boundaries of what can be done in a dispute. Set out things that how these disputes can be settled. And there's sort of, I suppose, four basic ways. First, I would say that the other side can buy the other side out, buy the shares. Or the company can buy back the shares. Or they can sell the business of the companies to a third party. And the fourth one is to go to court and, and maybe end up having the company wound up, which is not the ideal solution. It goes in the hands of a liquidator, you have a fire sale, 
and the company just the value of the company decreased dramatically. So that's a sort of I suppose the strategy that we often brought in at the stage was a meeting the next day, or, and uh, we encourage early resolution because really. Court cases are great for a lawyer. I'm going to be kicked in the, in the <laughs> shins for saying that at work, but it's so true. Um, and you don't get anything out of it. And, and you also, there's so much cost involved and the business just decreases in value. And in terms of shareholding, obviously some of the partners may also be employees in the business. Mm-hmm. When you've got an issue where you've got co-owners but they're both employees, how does hierarchy in terms of dismissal on that work. So in this scenario that you gave, you had one gentleman coming to work, being really rude to the staff or whatnot. Who has the authority to dismiss one or the other? Because one of the things that could have happened in that scenario is the, one of the partners says, look, Greg, you, you know, we're getting complaints from the staff. They're unhappy. People that work under you are resigning. And look, based on sort of performance, as you under your employment agreement, there's a situation here. Does that sort of become employment law and they got to follow a HR process? So it kind of gets mm. muggy. Can that be done or is that does that become difficult or you should just deal with it at the shareholder level? Like how does it – so it kind of gets – It's difficult because yeah. who's, who's making the decision, the final decision? And if it's no clear mechanism or there's an equal deadlock of a shareholder, the 50-50, you really have to look at the more of a shareholder level and employee level. There may be an employment agreement, but then again, who's got the right to enforce that agreement? Who's making the decision of saying that person is acting inappropriately? They might say they're not. So mm. therefore, you know, you've got a situation that's back to that 50-50 deadlock and how to resolve that. Awesome. So what are some proactive steps business partners can take to help mitigate impact of dispute if one does arise? Communicate with the other party straight away. You might have mentioned this before. That's the key factor. Start negotiating early because an early resolution is the key here and also make sure you avoid going to court. No, definitely. So obviously exiting a business partnership can be a difficult decision for many business partners. And sometimes there's a good reason to exit a business partnership. What are some other common reasons why business partners might decide to leave a partnership whereby, you know, a shareholder's agreement comes into play in a good way where someone decides to retire, they want to leave. Can you talk us through sort of good leavers and leavers that leave businesses in a way that is done fairly and adequately and shareholder agreements support and have a good mechanism for those things. Should be a good mechanism provided for in the shareholders agreement, but that's usually it's all about planning and people plan an exit. And then that's when it's when it's not planned, that's when the disputes are because it's certainly about the exit. So that's what you were trying to encourage in an agreement and that's what should be provided for. So it's the planning process which is the crucial aspect of that. And do you have in agreements with, you know, in terms of succession, is it is it worthwhile having sort of when you've got multiple business owners, is there sort of a trigger that happens when someone triggers a succession? So it could be it's a business where age is important, where age of owners, once they get to a certain age, so sort of in accounting and legal, once you get to a certain age, you're sort of forced to exit. Is that sort of something that you've seen in more common businesses and you do you advise that people put together some mechanisms that has a situation where a partner not necessarily is forced to leave but the exit strategy, the succession planning is already in an agreement well before it's even sort of there? Age limits and so forth are very <laughs> controversial area, especially in the accounting and legal field. And there's been a lot of uh, stuff in the press about age discrimination. So it's plainly not a good idea to have an age limit in the actual agreement, I wouldn't have thought, and I wouldn't encourage that. And you don't actually often see that, but you do actually sort of see processes where parties are planning for things uh, in their agreement. So that's what I certainly would encourage that. 
Yeah. Okay, let's talk about restraints. So that's sort of an area that I wanted to touch on. Mm-hmm. Well, business owners can come and go. And, and especially if they're young and it's not a retirement exit, they may want to continue operating a similar business or the same business on their own. How does restraints fall within shareholders' agreements and how do you sort of protect the business that's been built together but then upon an exit, how do you deal with restraints and how has that been covered off on in the past? Controversial area, Sivan, because um, one party will say they're enforceable and the other party will say they're not. The law is that if you're trying to protect a legitimate business interest, therefore a party can rely on a restraint. Legitimate business interest would be goodwill and client base. And if you've been entitled to a payout as a result of your exit, you should be expected to be restrained. Then it comes about what's reasonable, how long. And if you've got an restraint for five years, too long. It depends on the business, but, you know, the, typically it's about a year, I think, would be a normal restraint, but it depends on what's legitimate and also the area that you're trying to cover. So they're certainly common and they should be there to protect legitimate business interests, but it's usually in relation to protecting goodwill and that client-customer base. Yeah, and generally you'd think it's a good time for that business to build good, solid relationships with these customers that have stayed with the business. And, you know, you think that post a year, if those customers were to leave, then you haven't done enough in that 12-month period, I guess. So that seems to be a fair outcome. Yeah. And it's also there's arguments about what you're restraining. Are you soliciting clients? Are you canvassing clients? Are you putting yourself on LinkedIn? Is that is that soliciting clients? All those sort of things that come into play. And look, it's a it's a very highly contentious issue, but business should actually have a restraint there if they've got a legitimate industries to protect. So let's talk about shareholder agreements. So we sort of talked about the fact that they're really important to have. Generally, business owners start out small, especially if it's a startup, and then they get to a certain size and they haven't got an agreement in place, which isn't the end of the world as long as disputes haven't happened just yet. And sometimes it can actually even assist in in putting together an agreement because all sorts of different things have actually, you know, eventuated in the business. Can you take us through Velocity Legal's process? If I was to refer a client to you, a a couple, or it could be a couple in business, what what journey would you take them in terms of getting them to a shareholder's agreement? Well, we'd set out a template with all probably the usual provisions you have in a shareholder's agreement know a lot more about their business and what their plans are in the future. But it would normally be a detailed meeting with them about really what they're looking for and uh, explain, you know, things like restraints, explain about exits and explain about valuations and things like that. So it's really getting to know their business and their intentions and what they're looking to get out of it. So that would be sort of a face-to-face meeting. And then what would be next? So would you then give them, based on that meeting, a draft agreement that's templated or customised? How do you sort of go through the stages of getting well, to a signed document? No, it would be customised to their needs, but then we'd go through once again in another meeting and make sure they understand what they're getting into and, and making sure that they know what their obligations are and making sure that it's part of their business, that they're making a good decision on entering one. Yeah, and in terms of cost, what would be roughly a cost to a, a basic business, nothing overly complex, some rough numbers around what you would say sh- uh, someone should allow? Probably about $5,000. Okay, so it's not overly expensive. You think about insurances you pay on your car that you hopefully you never claim on. Mm. It seems like a reasonable one-off cost, and it is it is a one-off cost, isn't it, Greg? It is, um, because also people are putting capital in early on and, and, and money, they think, well, maybe oh, we can't afford to spend $5,000 on an agreement, but it's all about it's a false economy if you don't actually do, go into one. 
So Greg, some business owners are generally sort of, you know, a third, a third, a third or 50, 50, 50. But there are businesses that especially I've seen a fair few here where they bring on a shareholder and issue some ordinary shares to a younger partner or a younger business owner. And they might have say 5%, 6%, sort of a small token shareholding. Are they bound by the same shareholders agreement? The shareholders agreement would normally have what they call a deed of accession. So when you become a shareholder, you would actually have to sign that deed of accession to be bound by the existing shareholders' agreement. And let's say, for example, you've got the two big shareholders and you're bringing on sort of someone younger. Can you create sort of inside of a shareholders' agreement or amend that agreement where there's a shareholder that has less, sort of has different rules or does it have to be rules for everyone? I'm sort of going down the path of sort of shareholder oppression and that kind of world. And maybe talk us through you know, having a set of rules that's uniform versus that kind of world. Well, also, always got to look at the constitution for a start to see really what provides us what you're allowed to do. But surely you, you can amend the shareholders agreement to accommodate for the smaller shareholders because you might have the existing shareholders agreement which says, well, they're going to be unanimous voting. And that really doesn't suit the person who's got 5% uh, shareholding. So that, that may need to be amended to accommodate for those, those shareholders. So Sure, you can have an existing shareholder agreement, but you can actually also amend it to sort of make it flexible enough so you parties can come in and, and the business can change. And in terms of constitution, if you don't have a shareholders agreement, do most constitutions cover off on certain things that are covered in shareholders agreements or you wouldn't rely on a constitution generally? Not really. Things like preemptive rights would be in a constitution, which means that you have to go, if you want to sell your shares, you have to go to the other shareholders first rather than go out to the third party. But that's usually it as far as constitutions go. They don't usually have the nitty-gritty that a, that a shareholder agreement has. And in terms of shareholder oppression, in terms of that sort of area, what are some of the rules that you can and cannot do in terms of the way that shareholders behave with one another? Um, denying minor shareholders to uh, financials of the, of the company, the books and accounts, uh, that sort of thing. Maybe amending the constitution without and giving more um, dividend rights to the uh, majority shareholders. Things like that where the oppression of the of minority shareholders, they don't have any say or, or transparency over the business and therefore their, their rights and they're being eroded. And um, let's say you've, for whatever reason, you've brought on a small minor shareholder, they're no longer an employee, they're no longer a director, they resign, but they don't want to sell their shares and you don't have a shareholders agreement. What are some of the mechanisms? Are you stuck with this guy forever or girl or are there mechanisms to be able to exit a minority shareholder whereby they're forced to sell their shares? And you can't usually force them to sell their shares. This is a common occurrence, would you believe? And it's usually time really heals things because the 5% shareholder who's just sitting there getting their profits and it's a grain of rule. So it certainly makes the minority majority shareholders angry because they they think they're working their guts out and someone's getting 5%. But usually the 5% shareholder may start feeling uncomfortable when they not have any transparency over the business. They're just there um, not involved in any decision-making. And the majority shareholders, on the other hand, you have also sometimes where the majority won't buy out the minority because oh, yeah. they, they haven't got enough money. So or they say they have enough money. That often happens as well. So a person's left as an employee, but they've still got 5%. Majority shareholder therefore um, says, look, you can go, but we're not paying for your shares. We haven't got enough money. Once again, time usually heals things where the majority shareholder would go, hang on, I need to sell the business. I need to get another shareholder in here. Um, I can't have this 5% there anymore. We've got to offer them more money or we pay them. And also the other, the other way, the 5% shareholder is getting the dividend, 
um, may say, look, um, sorry, my, the majority might say to them, look, we'll pay you more money just to get rid of you. Okay. So that, that's sort of like a commercial decision. There you go. It's not easy though. No, that, those situations can be difficult, especially if that person then passes away then you've got a, a state mm. issue and and so on. So it's interesting. But you mentioned uh, around financial statements and seeing financials. When you do have a shareholder, there are rights to mm. seeing numbers and so on. Can you tell us sort of the rules around that? Well, the Corporations Act provides that the minority shareholder is entitled to the financial records but not the nitty-gritty management accounts and all that sort of thing. So it's more maybe the profit and loss balance sheet, but certainly not the management accounts and that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's that, that's required once a year but, um, when the accounts are finalised? Yes, yeah. so. I mean, uh, it's sort of you're entitled to them but you're not entitled to everything. Yeah. <laughs> Always. Yeah. yeah, got it. Greg, so obviously we've gone through dispute and resolutions and discussions, maybe court, maybe mediation, but at one point a resolution is reached and what are the things that makes that valid and what are the next steps once a, a party agrees to a resolution? Yeah, it's a very important point, Sivan. Once the resolution's reached, a settlement agreement needs to be entered into, a settlement deed, where the um, terms of the settlement are clearly set out because in a business there's a lot of loose ends that need to be tied up, things like personal guarantees, things like loans between the directors. These things and the restraints also have to be worked out clearly about what the person's able to do upon the exit. So all those loose ends are required to be tied up and that's important. So it's no good having a resolution and then next minute you're back arguing because you, don't, you haven't got a, a deed which sets out the terms of settlement. So it's that final signature, everyone reads it, signs it away and you know it's lock and loaded. It's clarity. Clarity. No, it's good. Greg, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our listeners. A big thank you for joining us on The Bottom Line. Thank you much, Savan. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna. And we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's the bottom line.